to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Now, uh, as Pastor Janice said, we are starting a brand new series uh, on prayer. It's called That You May Pray. And prayer is this wonderful, it's this beautiful thing. But, you know, it's, it's, it's compelling, it's, it's beautiful, but at the same time, it's overwhelming, it's confusing at times. And you know, I don't know how many of you would say, I'm crushing it in my prayer life. Like, my prayer life is superb. Like, I don't need such teachings. Like, I got the prayer thing nailed down. I think many of us, you know, honestly, if we were to uh, express feelings and sentiments about prayer, it's often sentiments of like, oh, I'm not sure about prayer. I try to pray, but sometimes it's really hard. In this series, no, it's, it's about prayer. It's about how do we grow in prayer? How do we go in depth in prayer? How do we go in breath in prayer? Now, if you're here for a service now, a couple of weeks ago, I shared this analogy uh, and this story. Um, you know, there's a community of people uh, in our church that play soccer, football, uh, very regularly. Uh, it's this whole chat group. And at times when they are charitable, you know, when they're feeling, you know, very gracious, they'll invite me to play with them. Most of the time is when they're lacking people, lah, so they'll invite me to play with them. So I'll go, I'll play with them, and more often than not, you know, when, they, when we were playing midway, they'll come to me, and then this is in light of my lack of goal scoring acumen and my larger than most frame. And they'll say to me, Andre, play defense. Then they'll say, use your body, Andre. Use your body, use your body, body them, body them. And they'll say, Andre, just play defense in the back. Now, unlike me and football, in the kingdom of God and in prayer, all of us can play offense. We don't have to play defense. All of us are invited by the grace of God to participate in prayer, to pray with God, to intercede. And we know prayer is more than intercession, but it's not less. And throughout the series, we'll talk about different facets of prayer, different invitations of prayer uh, you know, in, in God's kingdom. And through the weeks, we'll hear from different speakers, uh, and it's going to be brilliant. Now, that, that line that you may pray comes from this text in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. It says this, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. If you know anything about 1 Peter, 1 Peter has this assumption of Christians living in the midst of this hostile host culture where there's persecution, there is pressures on all sides. And Peter's injunction to the people of God is that in the midst of these harsh realities and circumstances, pray. And I think this book, First Peter, is so relevant for the days that we're living in. While we may not experience physical persecutions, there are definitely cultural pressures all around us, seeking to conform us and form us into the way of the world. And Peter's injunction to you and me in this climate, harsh realities, pressures on our side, is to default into prayer, is to pray. Now, when a doctoral student at Princeton asked, what is there left in the world for original dissertation research? Albert Einstein replied, find out about prayer. Somebody must find out about prayer. Now, prayer is not a foreign nor Christian exclusive concept. We see prayer being established and expressed in different kinds of faiths. There are fixed hour prayers, there are altar kind of prayers. And if we are honest with ourselves, we see prayer or diligence, fervency, and steadfastness in prayer being more uh, you know, seen and rooted than your average Christians. If we are honest with ourselves, 
prayer is not so much central to our life, central to the expression of our faith. However, scripture tells us this, that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. We see prayer being this keystone fixture in the life of Jesus. And I want you to glance past this, hear this. The Son of God, he who is a part of the Trinity, saw that prayer was vital, crucial for life well lived. Jesus himself saw prayer as absolutely essential. The scripture will detail multiple occasions where Jesus would engage in ministry and then withdraw to pray, to be with the Father. The truth is, for some of us today, we are confused about prayer. Why does God answer some prayers and why does he seemingly not answer some prayers? For some of us, we are obsessed about, you know, getting prayer right, the right technique, the right formula. Like, how can I pray in this certain way to guarantee the right results? How do I get prayer right? For some of us, we may be disappointed with prayer. We may have come out of a prolonged season of contending, of praying into something for breakthrough, and have just recently experienced loss on the other side. For many of us, we are ashamed of our lack of prayer. We know prayer is right. We know this is the thing to do. We know this is where life is found. And yet we struggle to really commit to it. We struggle to have it be a core fixture in our life. Deep down for most of us, and I believe for all followers of Jesus, we desire earnestly to grow in prayer. We really want it. We really want to do so. At heart, all followers of Jesus want to grow in prayer because we know that is where life in God is found. See, folks, we need this profound intimacy with God to fend off, to stand firm in the face of the challenges of our day. We need, you know, a, a word from God to cut through the cultural noise, to cut through worldly scripts of success. We need experiences with God's glory, His grace, His presence, His power to fend off this new wave of deconstructionism. In short, we need prayer. We need to pray. Not just in moments of crisis, but for the sake of our spiritual lives. We need to earnestly grow in prayer. And that's the heart of the series. And we'll be expounding this over the next six weeks. But for week one, I just have to lay a simple foundation piece to begin you know, this series of talks on prayer. And what I would essentially like to cover today is, one, a vision for what could happen in a time of prayer. Two, what happens to the people of God when their eyes move away from being fixed on the presence, the glory, the face of God onto lesser things? What happens in the soul? And thirdly, what happens when the people of God recapture a vision of God in their lives? How they change, how they transform, how they set apart. As always, we'll begin with a couple of passages of scripture as we begin this time for a word of prayer. Reading from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Reading also from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we recognize your presence that's in this place. You who are near, not far away. You who are alive and not dead. You who hear our prayers. God, even in this moment, we pause to reflect and think about the sheer privilege of prayer. And we can come into your presence and utter words of request, utter words of relinquishment, utter words of relation, and you hear our prayers. And God, we ask even in this moment as we look upon your word, God, won't you speak to us? It is not by the depth of research nor eloquent words that our lives are shaped and transformed, but it's by your presence and the words that you speak, O oh God. So Lord, we ask even as we dive into all this, Lord, may your voice be so clear. May our ears be inclined to hear your words, O oh God. And Lord, we pray for our hearts to be open and receptive to all that you want to do in us. We invite your holy presence in this place. Come and meet with your people. This is why we are here. We ask for your grace, your mercy, your presence to be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, a couple of years ago, I noticed something change, you know, something was, was beginning to change in, in my life. And of course, I'm not referring to bodily change, that way past, way past it. Um, but it was in the realm of focus and attention. I found like I wasn't able to give myself to long bouts of focus and attention. I was getting distracted really, really easily. Uh, you know, I would be in conversations, I would have these most life-giving, interesting coffee meetings, you know, and midway through a meeting, I would, you know, default to this impulse to pick up my phone, to check my messages, to get on Instagram and see what, el what someone else is doing. And I'll do that really often, you know, and it could be the best conversation, but I will still have this impulse. Pick up my phone to check out what someone else is doing and wanting to be somewhere else. Uh, you know, I would you know, go on vacation or experience a new sight, a new sound, a new experience. And midway through the experience, I'll whip out my phone, start videoing, start taking pictures, and then get on Instagram to post them so that people can know the cool places that I've been. And then, you know, I'll get sucked into someone else's story and then wish I was somewhere else all over again. And it would also you know, come you know, in, a, in the form of movies. You know, I would wait for a movie release, you know, and I would go in the theater, this 12, 15-minute movie, intense plot, complex plot, and then you know, my attention span would start to wane, and then I would get on my phone, go on Wikipedia, look up the plot, read the whole thing, and then I'm like, I'm already at the end of the movie, and it's, already 30, it's just 30 minutes in, and I'm done. Now, what was also immensely shocking for me was that I found that I wasn't able to devote large chunks of time to reading the Bible or to prayer. I just would find myself distracted over and over and over again. It was affecting my devotional life. Case in point, you know, we just concluded a 48-hour prayer charge as a church. If you know anything about it, there were multiple prayer slots. Each prayer slot was an hour long. I took on a couple myself, and we were tasked to pray through scripture, to declare stuff, to read stuff for a whole hour. Now, you know, I was uh, charged to pray the theme revival and restoration. I was like, yes, I'm going to do this. And so in the morning, you know, I took out my Bible, I got on my knees, I read scripture, I was like, yes, revival. I'm going to pray into this. I'm going to do this. 
And so I got my knees and I started praying, God, revive us. Revive us, oh Lord. We want to be rooted in you, oh God. Rooted in you. Rooted. My plants. Did I water my plants? I think I forgot to water my plants. Water. I think I need a drink of water. I'm a bit thirsty. Maybe I should get water. Maybe I should get a drink. Drink. Is anyone free to hang out tonight? I'm a bit bored. Maybe I should make some plants. And then before you know it, squirrel. I'm gone. I'm just distracted myself. And I look up at the time and an hour has passed and I distracted myself out of prayer. Now I wonder whether you can relate with this or what with the stuff I'm saying. And that was when I began to realize something was seriously wrong with me. Now we live in what researchers and sociologists call an attention economy. In a nutshell, it means this, that attention is a scarce resource. Humans only have so much of it. Marketers are then tasked to war for your limited attention through various tools, techniques, and strategies. The CEO of Microsoft once said this, that we are moving from a world where computing power is scarce to a place where it is now almost limitless, where the true scarce commodity is increasingly human attention. Researchers are postulate that the average attention span of a human being today and that's defined as being able to concentrate on a piece of work without being distracted. Researchers postulate that the average human attention span is less than that of a goldfish. Now, in the last decade, the attention economy uh, has been shaped by the smartphone. Attention merchants such as Facebook, Google are doing all they can using sophisticated psychological tactics to compete for the scarce and lucrative resource called human attention. What does that mean? That means when you know TikTok, attention go, and the brands have captured it. Sorry, Andrew. <laughs> now today, we have this need to be entertained, occupied, or rather be distracted constantly, don't we? Boredom almost seems like an ancient idea. When was the last time you sat in a room, twiddled your thumbs because you're so bored? You literally have the world at your fingertips through your smartphone. You know, we had a member of the cell group who, for work purposes, was on a ship for four months. And he had very limited Wi-Fi, and we just caught up with him, uh, a few of us. And the bulk of the conversations we had over the table weren't so much like, what was impactful about your work, or tell us more about what you did. We were like, how did you survive? You must have been so bored. Like, how much show do you watch? Do you get access to Netflix? Like, how did you live? Boredom, being unoccupied or not constantly entertained is a thing of the past. But a question we have to ask ourselves in light of all this is this. While we have the world quite literally at our fingertips, has this access and access brought detriment to our spiritual lives? Because we find it tough to be present with people. We find it hard to be present in moments. And more concerning we find it hard to be present with God. We find it hard to sit, to focus, to give God our attention, to tarry, to linger, to wait. This sense of distraction bleeds into our faith and creates a kind of disconnection. John Tyson says this, we often talk about God being absent from our lives. But in this culture of distraction, I wonder if we are the ones absent from him. We attend worship services, but pull out our phones during the sermon. No judgment here, folks. 
critique the music based on the most popular bands and forget to integrate what happened on the weekend into our everyday lives. This probing question confronts the spirit of the age. Are we blaming God for his absence when we are the ones no longer present? And so churches, like the one you're a part of now, pastors like me, do everything in our power to war for your attention. Gimmicky sermons, funder anecdotes, analogies, some illustrations, all to get your attention because there's so much competing for it. But this affects you two hours tops. And then when you leave this place, you're distracted all over again. All this to say, in light of the decreasing attention span we see widespread in society, all of the distractions that seek to war for attention, I'd like to put it to you that it is the hardest there's ever been to pray. Dr. Ralph Martin, in his book, Fulfillment of All Desire, puts it beautifully. He says this, prayer is at root simply paying attention to God. At its root, at its foundations, prayer is paying attention. Now, being distracted isn't just about an issue of focus. It's also when our minds become preoccupied with thoughts, concepts, views, conclusions that are all sing with the way of Jesus. John Mark Homer says this, the mind is the portal to the soul. What you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. That bodes well for those apprentices or disciples of Jesus who give the bulk of their attention to him and to all that is good, beautiful, and true in his world. But not for those who give their attention to the 24-7 new, news cycle of outrage, anxiety, and emotion-charged drama. It's okay, drama people or the non-stop feed of celebrity gossip, titillation, and cultural drivel. Read this line, as if we give it in the first place. Much of it is stolen by a clever algorithm out to monetize our precious attention. That's for another sermon. But again, we become what we give our attention to, for better or for worse. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that the root of much spiritual barrenness, dysfunction, stems from being distracted. It stems from having your attention fixated on something that is outside of God's kingdom. Our minds are often fractured and fragmented, pulled in a multitude of directions. We find it hard to resonate on a soul level with the words of David, one thing I've asked and that will I seek. Because our hearts are pulled by many, many things. Now this brings me to Psalm 73. This is the teaching text for this morning, and we'll spend some time working through this text. We won't do you know, word studies or anything like that, but we're just going to read through scripture and observe this thing of distraction and what it does to the human soul. A bit of background, Psalm 73 was written by the psalmist Asaph. Asaph was essentially an employed worship leader in the time of King David and King Solomon. His whole mission, purpose, vocation where he stemmed meaning for his life was around the presence of God. He would minister in the presence of God day and night. This was a man deeply consecrated and devoted to the things of God. This was Asaph. He wrote some of the most beautiful Psalms in the Bible. So much of what was said about him was his depth of devotion and consecration to the Lord. But however, in Psalm 73, we get this different picture of Asaph. 
here we read that Asaph has begun to grow distracted and disillusioned with God. He gets distracted, yet take it, he, he begins to take his eyes off of God and it leads to what we can only describe as a kind of spiritual decline. And the reason why we're working through this text is because I believe for many of us, this is where it begins. Where we grow into apathy and where we experience decline in our faith is when we begin become distracted. Now let's kick off with Psalm 73, starting in verse 2. And we observe here Asaph's distraction. It says this in God's word, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now hear this. Asaph is this worship leader, life oriented around the presence of God. His whole life basically consists of liturgies, of songs of praise to God. And then at this point, he grows to be distracted. He starts observing the lives of people you know, outside of temple. Look at these people. They have so much money. They have no care. Like they are not obligated by any ethical demand. They don't have to live a certain way. They are just living it up. And observe what happens as he grows distracted, as he takes his eyes off of the purpose, the call of God, envy starts to creep in his heart. And then suddenly everything looks better. Everything looks better on the other side. The grass seems greener on the other side. And as our culture conspire against us to make this happen. Think about what happens when you go on your social media feed, when you see someone's story, when you see someone's post. Uh, for the most part, are you filled with joy, delight, contentment in God? Or do you experience envy, jealousy, rage for where you are in your life, wanting something different? better. That's what happens, folks, when we get distracted. Envy starts to creep in our heart. We are sucked into this endless accumulation for more. Suddenly, the worthiness of God, the cause of discipleship, doesn't make sense anymore. Because gradually, we don't just become distracted. We start to you know, become distorted in the way we view life, in the way we view God in His world. Verse 4 and 5 and verse 12 says this. This is Asaph about the, the, the rich. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. This is distortion. You don't see clearly your values, your priorities, your grasp of what life is. It's out of sync. And it's obviously not true that the rich have no struggles, that the wealthy and godless are strong and unplagued by human life. But this distortion happens when we take our eyes from God. His worthiness is overwhelmed by the cares of the world. All of a sudden, everyone's, everyone else's life seems easier, doesn't it? Right? We go, man, they're having such a good life. It's so easy. Maybe it's better I give up this whole thing. Right? They seem to be living such a good life. Why am I doing this? I am miserable. This ultimately leads to the next stage, discouragement. Verse 13 to 14, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Notice the intensity of this language. In short, Asaph has come to a point in his life from being distracted, having a distorted view of life, to a point where he goes, what's the point, man? 
What's the point? Why am I even doing this? Is it worth it? Why am I sacrificing? Why am I living such a life of simplicity? I could be living it up on the outside. What's the point? He's discouraged. And in verse 16, it leads to a kind of disillusionment. It says this, when I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply. That word troubled is that word sorrowful. It's this deep, intense, visceral feeling. The depravity of heart, of hope. It's troubled deeply. It's disillusion. And ultimately, it leads to disobedience. Verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. A brute beast before you. Instead of responding to God, his ways, his words, his purpose, Asaph at this point is defaulting to his most primal animal-like instincts. Instead of going, God, what are you requiring of me today? He is going, what do I want and how do I get it? He's defaulted to this primal instinct. I've noticed, you know, even in my own life that sin doesn't rear its head in a moment of faith when I am filled with a spirit of faith. But when I grow discouraged and bitter and troubled my life, somehow sin begins to creep up. And things that I would not even think or be tempted to do in a time of faith, in a moment of discouragement, it all seems so, so appealing. This is what happens. And this, you know, isn't just stages of decline. It is a cycle. Because disobedience, this indulgence in sin, in pleasures out of sin with God, brings us to further distraction. And so we go distracted. The cycle repeats itself again. I wonder how many of us can relate to this and see this played out even in our own lives. We see this not only in the life of Asaph, but in King Solomon as well. First Kings chapter 11, verse 9 says this, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. The heart is this seed of emotion, but it also captures this idea of affection and devotion. Solomon had allowed himself to be captured and enamored by his abundance, his accomplishments, his stature, counsel from his foreign wives that he just accumulated. And this led to apathy and spiritual compromise. Now, the idea I'd love to leave with you today is this, that we do not simply stumble into spiritual disobedience. It begins as a slippery slope and it starts off as distraction. When our eyes are cast on lesser things, away from God. Ronald Roheiser says this, Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Now, it is not that we have anything against God, death, and spirit. We are like all these things. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. The thought is this, if we don't want to live in disobedience and disillusionment, 
you have to begin to pay attention to what you allow yourself to be distracted by. Now, I love the Apple Watch for many reasons. I love Apple products. I think it's the, it's the watch of the church because apostolic. Um, I love the Apple Watch. And, and one of the things that, that I really appreciate, I know some of you are shaking your head. Please, please don't leave. Um, one of the things I love about the Apple Watch is this thing where you, know, you, you get to push notifications to it, right? And you know, it really frees me from needing to have my phone out. I can put it in my pocket, in my bag, and I really have my phone out with me all the time. And one of the things you know, that you realize with the Apple Watch is that the default setting is that it pushes every single notification to your wrist. And so when I first got it, my wrist was vibrating nonstop. I could develop carpal tunnel at some point. You know, it was just vibrating nonstop. And what I needed to do was to go on the settings page and one by one check off the notifications, the stuff that I didn't want to in be interrupted by, only leaving the crucial, the important, the vital. I needed to do an audit of my notifications. And what we need to do for the sake of spiritual lives is do an audit of the things we allow our minds to be preoccupied with, of the things we allow our souls, our minds, our lives to be interrupted by. We need an audit of what we think, we ponder, we contemplate on for the sake of our lives. That's why Hebrews chapter 2 says this, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Now, drifting, it doesn't happen, you know, uh, it, it, drifting happens when you're not intentional. How many of you have been kayaking? Right, you know, you've been kayaking, you stop pedaling, and then... Long story short, you end up in Malaysia, right? That's what, that's what drifting is. It's when you're not cognizant of the currents that is pulling you. How do you prevent yourself from drifting? You have to be intentional which direction you're going. You have to be cognizant. You have to pay careful attention. But folks, if you read on further, this is not where ASF leaves us. It's not saying, okay, distracted and then sway, and then there's no hope. If we read on further, we see Asaph in the middle of his disillusionment, despair, despondency, disobedience. He moves out of a cycle of disobedience and into a cycle of attention. Verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood the final destiny. The sanctuary of God is this place of worship, but it's also the presence of God. And Asaph entered into this place into God's presence. It's almost as though the fog in his head, this lack of clarity, this disillusionment just faded away and God gave him clarity of mind in that moment. I wonder how many of you have experienced the same where you're grappling with something all week, no clarity, no hope, no vision. You come into God's presence, you worship Him and God speaks, God gives you a word and all of a sudden everything makes sense. That is what happened to Asaph. Now, as I consider this idea of giving God our attention, I can't help but think of the biblical character Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, we read of an angel of the Lord appearing to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And so Moses looked and he beheld the bush and he noticed that it was burning a fire, but it was not consumed. And then watch this, Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Verse 4, so when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, watch this, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And usually when we reread this story, we read it as God called out to Moses and then Moses turned and looked upon God. 
But you read this story carefully. It was Moses who first gave his attention, his gaze to God, and then a word of promise, a word of purpose came to him. And God wants the same for us. He wants to give him our attention. He wants to release a word to you, even in this moment. Because folks, whatever has your attention not only possesses your mind, it possesses your heart. Luke chapter 11 says this, the eye of the lamb, the eye is the lamb of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What we cast our eyes upon, what we give our attention to, is crucial, it's important, it's vital to the flourishing of our spiritual lives. And that is why I believe pastors like myself advocate for the local church and the gathering of the saints. You know, I, I just have to share this with you, like your attendance here means very little to me. Attendance, uh, no, no, sorry, let me, you know, clarify myself. If I open my eyes, all oh, you are gone. <laughs> You come to church not for the sake of attendance, but because the people of God need their attention fixed on the right thing. We need to regularly set this rhythm because we are distracted by many things in life. And for once a week, this moment in time, we come together, we lean on the faith of people on the right and our left, and in the unity of the body, we call upon the name of Jesus, we seek his presence, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We come here not for the sake of fulfilling an attendance requirement, we come here because we need our attention fixed on the right thing. That's why we need this, and I'd like to put it to you that you need this more than you think you do. We need our attention fixed. Because when we do that, we step into greater awareness. And this was what happened to Asaph. Verse 18, surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. And goes on to say a whole bunch of stuff. Now hang on a second. What happened to all that stuff about the wealthy and the wicked being so awesome, having no problems, just living it up? I want to be like them. All of a sudden, he has clarity of mind, his focus, his insight now. He has total awareness of the reality of life. And it leads to acknowledgement. Verse 23, yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you take me into glory. Previously, it was like, where is God? Why should I restrain myself? Why do I give myself to this? What's the whole point? Previously, it was like, I cannot. I cannot, I cannot. But now it has turned to, you will, you will, you will. You will guide me, you will lead me, you will hold me. And it produces in him a kind of appreciation, a deep appreciation for God. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And ultimately, this leads him to adoration. Verse 28, But as for me, it is good to me near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Sense of worship for who God is. 
Because just as distraction produces a kind of vicious cycle, attention is a cycle as well. It goes from, you know, this giving God attention and awareness, acknowledgement of Him, and then appreciation for who He is, and adoration for who He is. Folks, if you want to live free of disobedience and disillusionment, we have to pay attention to what we pay attention to. Now, what is this act, in closing, of paying attention to God? In short, it is prayer. It's prayer, it is worship, it's looking at Jesus, it's beholding Him. It is taking the thoughts of our mind, the posture of our body, the incarnation of heart, bridling all of it, and posturing it toward the face, the presence of Jesus. This is who is worthy of our attention. The philosopher Kierkegaard once said that the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. And I think of that text in 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Because in short, what you behold, you will eventually become. What you give your attention to, you ultimately adore what you attribute worth to, you would worship. Who is worthy of attention? Who has it in this moment? Final quote from you from Samuel Whitfield, and this is from his book, Discipleship Begins with Beholding. He says this, it's a lengthy one, but let us speak to you. This is the way the human heart is made, and it's the model for biblical discipleship. We see someone who is beautiful, we become fascinated by him, and then we joyfully and gladly reorient our lives to behold more of that person and desire to be a part of his people. Marriages become dead when there is no delight or fascination in the other person, and the same is true for churches. We do not want churches filled with people who do the right thing and attend church functions yet have no delight in God. People who are fascinated by Jesus will willingly sacrifice far more than people who are devoted but not fascinated. If we train people to be devoted when they are not captured by the beauty of Jesus, they'll become religious in their habits, but that is not discipleship. It's a form of hypocrisy. Logic is not enough to produce a mature people. Sin is far too deceptive. The human heart is not a robot. The human heart is not primarily rational and logical. It longs for beauty. It's made to be fascinated, enamored, captivated by God's beauty. We were made for the glory of God. Now for any of you here who feel just despair, distracted, perhaps you've indulged in a life of disobedience, you're disillusioned with the faith. The hope for you this morning is this, that just as the psalmist Asaph got out of a cycle of distraction and into a cycle of attention that leads to, that leads to adoration. The same can be so for you this day. You can give your attention to God and watch your life transform. You behold what you become. You become what you behold. Now I think of the story of the prodigal son and in many ways there are you know, real parallels behind, between all that we've just read in Asaph's psalm and the life of the prodigal son. He gets distracted by a far-off place, a life of luxury and excess. He begins to have this distorted vision of who his father is. 
He begins to have, get discouraged because he perceived himself as being placeless in his father's house. I'm the youngest son. There's no place for me here. Then he grows to be disillusioned. And then he disobeys his father and ends up in the pig pen. And then the scripture tells us this, that he came to his senses. Something was awoken in him. He came to his senses. He came to an awareness of who his father was, an acknowledgement of who his father is, and ultimately an appreciation for his father's love and provision toward him. Now here's the thing that we will realize. It will come as a surprise to us that even in our deepest disillusionment and disobedience, the father's eyes has always been upon us. His attention is always upon us. And when we move out of distraction and recapture a vision of God and give our attention back to him, we would be surprised to see that the father's eyes has never left us. The father comes running toward us. When we give him our attention, we realize that his eyes are always upon us. And one thing to embrace us, he's running down to welcome you home. That is the good news of the gospel. And so folks, in closing, I have uh, three questions for us to leave you even as you, you know, walk this out with God. You know, one of the things that you realize with this sermon is that there are not many practical handles or tools. I'm not giving you three steps to recapture attention, to restrict, to reject, you no know, distraction and, and all of that. But, uh, you know, I realize that we are all unique and the distractions we face are unique. The struggles that we battle are unique. Therefore, this call to come back to attention, to have our eyes fixed on God, is a unique call. Some questions to help you begin the process are this, you know, where, what or who are my eyes fixed upon? How has God been beckoning me and have I responded? The last thing is this, what adjustments do I need to make to give God more of my attention? Now, folks, it is said that the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day. 2,617 times a day. Now, in contrast, the psalmist says this, I have set the Lord always before me. Now, this might be an extraordinary vision, but let's just roll with it. What if thoughts about God, thoughts about his kingdom, his joy, his delight, his goodwill toward you, touched your mind 2,617 times a day? What kind of life would that be? What would happen to our souls if we were to choose to turn aside, fix our eyes, our gaze upon Jesus? What will we become? Because adoration, attention leads to adoration. Distraction leads to disobedience. Can we stand? You know, I didn't manage to share this in the first service, so bonus content for you second service people. You know, as I was you know, really researching, looking into this subject of prayer, I can't help but uh, be reminded of the story of Susanna Wesley. I don't know if, if you're familiar with Susanna Wesley. She's the mother of John and Charles Wesley. She's commonly referred to as the mother of Methodism. And there's this story of her uh, and her life of prayer where she would, you know, in the middle of a kitchen with her children running around her, take an apron, you know, put it over her head, and say to children, like, when the apron's over my head, I'm talking to God. This is my prayer.
time. And there's always this beautiful picture that we give to parents, new parents, like, hey, you know, you can still have a devotional life even with your children. Just, you know, buy an apron, put it over your head, tell them to, like, shut up, talking to God. Now, this is a beautiful kind of picture, and it's very comforting. But there's a bit of backstory to this. Susanna Wesley, she married a pastor, and they basically disagreed on anything. They had a troubled marriage. She had 19 children. Nine of them died in infancy. She buried nine of her children. Her husband often left her alone to raise her children for long periods of time. One of her children was crippled. One of them couldn't talk until he was six years old. She was desperately sick for most of her life. She was plagued with by debt. Often there was no money for food. Twice the homes they lived in was burned to the ground. And it was said that, it was assumed that church members burned their house to the ground because they hated her husband's sermons. Please don't burn my house. And someone, you know, in, in, in an attempt to like get them to move, slit the udders of their cows so that they wouldn't have any milk to drink. Someone killed their dog and burned down their entire field. Now, that is Susanna's word, Susanna Wesley. However, when she was young, she made this commitment to God that for every hour of entertainment she had, she would give an hour back to God in prayer. And that grew increasingly hard to do because there was so much that demanded her attention in life. And so she made a deal with God as a means of compromise. She said, God, I can only give you two hours of my day, every day, to seek your face, to pray, to worship. And for two hours a day, she would take an apron, put it over her head, take off her shoes, and say, this is holy ground. In this moment, I would give my attention to God. In spite of all that's happening around me, homes burning down, children dying, cows having their udders slit off, I will give my attention to God. And I theorize this, that she was able to fend off all discouragement and disillusionment and maintain a steadfast faith to God because that was something she committed to. Her eyes were set upon God. If you know a story, you know, she would raise John and Charles Wesley. John Wesley was said to, have, to preach to over a million people in person in his lifetime. Tons converted. Charles Wesley was basically Battle Hillsong, Merrick City, Elevation, all put together. He wrote 9,000 hymns, many of which we sing today. John Wesley would say that he learned more about Christianity from his mother and from all theologians in England. Now, what a vision. What a vision. And in spite of all that we face, in spite of all that tries to distract us, pull our attention, we can put a stick in the ground and say, God, you have my eyes, you have my devotion, you have my affection. The fan of discouragement, to lead us to a place of adoration. And the vision here, folks, is that it doesn't just stay with you. It leaves a legacy to your children, to those around you. Now, what a vision, folks, for those who are parents. This is why I envision for my life that when Sage wakes up in the morning, she'll see me with an apron over my head. I need to buy an apron in order to do this. But she'll see me giving myself to a life of devotion and affection and attention to God. Because that is what's needed for us to stay through this cause of life called faith. And so in this moment, I'm going to invite you right now, just give God your attention. Whatever it looks like, with your eyes closed, your hands lifted up, say, God, you have my attention. I fix my eyes upon you even in this moment. Cast my gaze upon you. 
Lord, for where I'm distracted, for where I have cast my eyes on lesser things, I invite your grace even this moment to lead me back to you. Cause me to look upon you, Jesus. Cause me to experience Father's embrace even this moment. Father who has never left us nor forsaken us, whose eyes are always upon us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. In your name, amen. Let's go back to worship together.